Good morning, church. God speaks to us in his word in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. That's my wife, Abby, by the way. <laughs> Thanks, Abby. <laughs> Okay, hey, good morning, everybody. Yeah, my name is Jordan. I serve as our worship and our student director. And just really excited to open God's word with you today and picked a really easy book of the Bible in Deuteronomy to preach today. So we're in Deuteronomy chapter six. And yeah, today is a family service. So kids in the room, we're really glad that you're here. And students as well, all the way up to college and whole families who are here, welcome. Really glad that you're here with us today. A couple months ago, we gathered in this room for a parent gathering. We invited all of our parents to come and talk about discipling kids and what it looks like in the church and what it looks like in the home. And so talking with Ben and our elders about this morning, we just figured that it'd be wise and helpful for our entire church, not just parents, to kind of talk about some of those things again this morning. And so Deuteronomy chapter 6 is what we're going to dive into today. And yeah, we're talking about family. And families can be complicated, right? There's so much nuance in them. And whether you are a husband and wife with kids, biological, adopted, or foster kids, or you're married without kids, or you're single, family is one of the most crucial aspects of our lives. And the things that our parents and our families instill in us are passed down from generation to generation both good and hard things. And whether we know it or not, those things have had a massive impact on our life. And so this is just rhetorical, don't raise your hand, but how many of us can say that our family has been a profound source of joy in our lives? Most of us can raise our hand for that. But then on the flip side, how many of us can also say that family has been a source of sadness in our life? Most of us can also say that, and that's not a coincidence that all of us are in that boat. It's almost as if God designed it that way, because he did. He designed it that way, but he didn't leave us on our own to just figure it out, to figure out how to be in family, to live within family, and to flourish within family. He gave us a guide how to do it, how to teach our family, how to love our families. He gave us a mantra, if you will, or a banner to gather under. And so if I had to title this sermon, and I have, I would call it, keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And what I mean by that is that there are, exactly what Rachel said when we were praying, there are a hundred thousands of things in our life, voices, competing for our attention. Whether it be jobs and school or hobbies, technology, sports, money, good things like time with family, and vacations, or even coming to church. And this time of year, we've got graduations and people stepping into a new phase of life, graduation parties, summer rhythms starting back up, 
our cell phones, TV. There are a thousand voices competing for our attention, and it's really easy to get lost in that and get our priorities mixed up. And so the passage that we'll look at today and the other ones that we'll look at plead with us to keep the main thing the main thing, which is Jesus and his word. And so in Psalm 138, before we read Deuteronomy 6 again, Psalm 138 verse 2 says that I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word, name and word. So with these thousands of things, voices competing for our attention, what we need is the name and the words of Jesus to cut through the noise and to take root in our lives. And so this passage, Deuteronomy 6, gives us both the name of the Lord and how we ought to worship and live with him as our banner, and then it gives us instruction on what to do with his very word. And so there are a few passages in the Bible that have actual titles to them attached, and it's more than just the the bold line at the top of your Bible, but some have actual titles. For instance, a very cool one in Genesis chapter three, the title is a big word. It's the Proto-Evangelium. It's a really big word that means the first gospel. And what what it means is it's the story of the first time that a plan was mentioned of the gospel. And God speaks to the serpent after the serpent, after the devil has just fooled Adam and Eve into sinning for the first time. And God speaks to the serpent and says, you might, or he says that the Messiah is coming, that the seed of woman is coming, and that you, serpent, you might bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. It's the first mention of the gospel, and it has a name called the the Proto-Evangelium. And this passage, similarly, is called the Shema. So you'll have to apologize. uh, I'm used to preaching to your teenagers and I have them repeat what I say a lot. So everybody say the Shema, the Shema. So there's a lot to break down historically with this passage, but the language is what's really important. The words used in the passage and all over the Bible, they're only the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more underneath. And when we do the work of unpacking what's beneath these words, we understand so much better. We see everything becomes more clear And it also helps us to see how this entire book, every word of it, points us to Jesus. And so we need to study it, and we need to cherish it, and we need to love it. And so we're going to do that work right now. So historically, the Shema, quickly, it's the most important prayer in the Jewish faith. And it's been said and memorized in Jewish households for over 3,000 years since God gave it to us here. It's said in the morning when you rise and the last thing you say before you lie your head down. And it serves as a reaffirming of faith. The first thing you say and the last thing you say. say. And the first word of it is hear. So let's just read the whole thing together again. The Shema, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. 
You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so the first word is hear or listen. And the Hebrew word, the word that, the language that this book was written in, the Old Testament, the original word in Hebrew is shema. The word shema means to hear or to listen, hence the name of this prayer. So, but there's more to it than that. It's more than just physically receive sound waves into your ear. It's more than just physically hear something, but to pay attention to, to focus on, or to consider, and ultimately to obey, to listen and obey. And the same word is used back in Genesis chapter 3, where uh, in the Proto-Evangelium, where it says that Adam and Eve did not shema, meaning they heard what God said, but they did not listen and they did not obey. So when Moses says to the people of God here, hear, O Israel, he's not saying, hey, guys, just perk up your ears real quick because the Lord gave me this and you just need to hear this real quick. No, he's saying, guys, this is the word of God. You need to listen and obey. Listen and obey. See, in this culture and in this text, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. They go together. It's why James says that we should not only be hearers of the word, but doers. It's why the prophets and Jesus himself say multiple times throughout scripture that they have ears, but they did not listen. It's why Jesus in Matthew 13 and in the gospels, his disciples ask him, why do you preach in parables? And Jesus replies in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not actually see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you'll indeed see, but never perceive. It's why Jesus says multiple times throughout the gospels, he who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear, which I've always found was kind of weird, kind of weird to say, because the only thing that ears can do is hear. Yet Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And that seems strange until you realize what is Jesus actually saying? He's calling us to Shema, to listen and obey. And so this is important. This is really important. This is key. These, are, these words are the banner that God has given us to gather under. And it's the words that God's people gather under in this story and in this passage, and we should too. It's our banner. And I was thinking about this last weekend as I was beginning to put this together, and I was struck because I went to my mom's graduation ceremony. So my mom, a couple years ago, went back to school to finish her degree, and last weekend she finally finished. And so me and my whole family made the trek up to Springfield, Missouri, and we piled into a basketball arena with thousands of people, and there are about 600 graduates, huge. And we all sit there and wait for a while, and then the graduates, we've probably, a lot of us have been to a graduation ceremony lately, all the graduates start to parade in, and the one we were at, a jazz band played Pomp and Circumstance, which was kind of cool, but also kind of weird, and they changed it. It was like weird, but it was good. So they all gathered in. We wait for about 25 minutes while they all parade in there, and what I noticed as I was looking at this passage is that the first person in line carried with them a massive banner that said, College of Business or College of History, what have you. 
And all of these students that were parading in behind this banner were all different, different majors, and they study different things, they're from different places, and they're going different places in life, but they all gathered under one unifying thing, College of Business. And so today, this is our banner. This is the thing that unifies us. And now if you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian, then we actually have a lot in common, but this is the main thing. It's what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. If Jesus calls something great, then we should take it seriously. That we should love the Lord our God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that the Lord our God is Lord. He is Lord, meaning he's not just God who spun us into creation and then left us on our own. He's Lord over our life even today. And so when you look at the monumental task of discipling families and being within family, it can seem daunting, but God boils it down for us and he gives us a guide. So what should we hold most dear? His name and his word. And so we see two things today. The first that we see is that one, we should exalt his name. We exalt the name of God. So how does this passage start? The Shema begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with your soul, and with all of your might. And so that's the first thing that we see is that we should exalt his name. But what is his name? So it says, hear or listen and obey, people of God. This is who our God is, the Lord our God, Yahweh that capital L in there, it's Yahweh. It's the covenant name for God in the Old Testament. It's the name that God used for himself when he promised Moses that he was gonna free his people. And this is the same God that led his people out of slavery, who brought them through the Red Sea and through the desert for 40 years and brought them into the promised land. And it's the same God that's alive in Christians today, delivering you from your own Egypt. And underneath the surface of that word of Yahweh, of the Lord, is a promise that he will deliver you. That's who our God is, that his love is steadfast and faithful. He's a God who delivers. He's a rock that we can build our faith upon and he'll never let us down. And then he is also one. There's a reason that God is named three times in one sentence. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this would have been mind-blowing to these people because they're coming from a, a culture of polytheism, meaning many gods, many, many gods. And they've even got men who are these kings called pharaohs who are demanded to be treated like gods. And they were quick to anger and torturous and they were brutal. And they enslaved God's people. And that's what God's people knew as God. Well, here they're told about a God who is one one God above all. And that would have blown their minds. It, it, it's new. So the name of our Lord should be exalted. The name of God should be exalted because it has been exalted. Because God exalted it. His name is so holy and so great that we should give our very lives in the praise and worship of that name. But not just, not just here when we sing. I love that song that we sing about the, we're gonna praise God one day in heaven on the Mount of Zion, and that is beautiful, but we should also live every aspect of our lives today to the praise and worship of God. So the Shema continues saying that you should love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and might, every aspect of our life. 
And Jesus repeats this in Luke 10. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, Luke 10, 27. And so Jesus teaches us that we are whole beings made up of heart, mind, soul, and strength. And again, he calls this the greatest commandment in agreement with the Shema, which by the way, he would have known. He would have had it memorized and he would have said it daily. So we should love the Lord our God with our whole heart, meaning the things that we feel, the, things that, the way that we care for others, the people that we love, the way that we, sh- that we love should reflect the heart of Jesus and the way that he's loved us. I think my wife is a, is a nurse and a professor of nursing, and she leans in this direction. She leads and loves with her heart. And then we love the Lord our God with our mind, our thoughts, what we think about, the ways that we discipline our mind. Romans 12, 2, it says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. We love God with our mind. And then we also love with our souls, which is kind of hard to explain, but I like to think of it as people who are after wisdom, people who are seeking after wisdom, being wise people that let our mind inform our hearts the way that we love people. And then our strength. Yes, what do we do with our hands and our feet to love God, but also our capacities, everything that we have, everything that God's given us, all for the glory of Jesus. So we love God with everything that we are. And it's not that, hey, I'll love God with the things that I do or the things that I give, but my thoughts are my own. Or, hey, I'm gonna, I will come to church and I will serve and I'll give, but my heart is my own. No, we belong to Jesus. We are not our own. So we trust in his name that's above all other names. We trust in the power of that name because the power of that name is the most powerful thing. It's the name that we speak over darkness in our town. It's the name that we proclaim over sickness as the thing that has power to heal. And it's the name that we proclaim over death because it's the only thing that has power over death is his name. It's the name and the person and work of Jesus that saves our souls. And it's not ours, but his. So... God calls us to exalt his name. So we worship him with everything that we are and we lift up that name. And the second thing that we see is that we should love his word. We should love his word. So verse six says that these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So what do we do with his word? We read it and we love his word. We should love his word. We need to be people of the book. Let it inform your life and let the way that you live your life and the words that you speak be words of God. Colossians 3, 16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give your thanks to God the Father through him.
So let the word saturate your life. What is Paul saying? He's saying, let it fill you so that when you speak, it flows out of you. And then the Shema tells us to teach it. Teach it to your families. Teach the scriptures. And you don't have to be a pastor or a theologian to do this. You don't have to be trained Your kids and people younger than you, if you don't have kids, people around you need to hear how the Lord has been faithful in your life. So parents in the room, your story should not be a mystery to your kids. It should be talked about. Faith should be talked about in the home. And when somebody, so that when somebody inevitably leaves the home, moves out, goes to college or goes to work, when they're asked about their faith, they can look back and say, yeah, it's the faith that my parents instilled in me. And it's my own faith, it's my own faith, but it was passed down to me because my parents took this command really seriously to teach the word of God. So parents, again, how do we do this? And I, I know I say this to you as a, I'm fully aware as a 26 year old who doesn't have kids yet, but what do we do? How do we teach this? Well, you don't have to hold at home seminary classes You don't have to break out the biblical commentaries for a bedtime story. It'd be really dull. But I will say this, read the word together. Reread the book of Jonah. It's crazy. Like there are some crazy stories in this book and they all point us to Jesus if you know how to look for it. So read the Bible together. If you've got little kids, grab a Jesus storybook Bible. They're incredible. If you've got kids who are in their 30s, Grab a Jesus storybook Bible. They're incredible. So teach your family to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love their neighbor. Teach them to worship Jesus and to exalt his name. And know this, parents, it's not too late. It's not too late. And you are equipped. God has trusted you with your kids. It's not too late. So take the responsibility seriously. And know this, that you'll probably have to teach it more than once, (laughs) more than twice. Which is why I think this is really kind of God where he says to teach it when you sit and when you walk and when you lie down and when you rise. So he's not saying that you have to teach the word with every breath that you breathe has to be the word. What I think he is saying is that the word of God is always appropriate for teaching in any situation. There's something about the opposites there. When you sit and when you walk, when you lay down and when you rise up and everything in between. Teaching, it's appropriate for every situation. And it should be the first thing that we go to. So if you want your kids or your family to love the scriptures, then love the scriptures. If you want want your kids to be forgiving, then be forgiving. Ask them for forgiveness. And forgive your kids, forgive others. Do you want them to love Jesus? Then love Jesus. Do you want them to sing and worship? Then sing and worship. You could go on and on and on. All right, it continues in verse eight. This is the, this is the, this part seems kind of weird. It says, you should bind them as a sign on your hand, the word of God. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So a few things here that we see. In in the days of the Old Testament and 
continues to today, uh, there's some who take this command really seriously and they would actually bind the word of God to their hands and strap it on their hands and then take the word of God, put it on their heart and strap it to their chests and then wear these headbands with the word of God to keep it between their eyes. And that's cool, I guess, <laughs> but <laughs> I think what, what we're actually seeing here is that the word of God should be a few things. Number one, he says that it should be on your hands and on your eyes, as if to say that the word of God should be near to you. It should be on your being. It should be personal. You should see it and let it inform your actions and how you see people. The word of God is personal. And then secondly, the word of God is, is also familial, family. It's, uh, it says that it should be on your doorposts of your house. So maybe not literally, but how many of our parents or our grandparents' house actually have the word of God on the walls or on our furniture? My, my mom is really into refurbishing old furniture, and she, my entire life, uh, gosh, 20-something years ago, she took an old kitchen table, stripped it off and repainted it and put a verse on it and says, this is the day the Lord has made, Psalm 118, 24. And I'm never gonna forget that verse because it, I looked at it every night at dinner and I sat on the opposite side, so I read it upside down every day of my life. <laughs> this is the day the Lord has made, Psalm 118, 24. It just rolls off my tongue. I'll never forget it. And so, yeah, have the word of God in your home, but more than that, the word of God should be spoken about in the home. It should be common language. So it's familial. The word of God is personal and it's familial. And the word of God is also public. It's public. It should be as though the word of God is on our gates. And not a ton of us have front gates. So on your mailbox or in the front yard and the mailbox of our lives, that the word of God should be seen by our neighbors, by people that we know. It should be as though it's coming off of us as we speak. Our neighbors should know that we belong to Jesus because we hold the word of God so near. It should be public. The word of God should permeate every circle of our lives and pierce through. It's personal, it's familial, and it's public. There's a story in Exodus chapter 12 called uh, the Passover. And in this story, God sends Moses, who conveyed this message, to convey another message to uh, the Pharaoh, to, the, to this king that I talked about before. And he sends Moses to the Pharaoh to say, I want you to let God's people out of slavery. And the Pharaoh says, no. So God sends a series of plagues, 10 plagues, to the land of Egypt to display his power and to, uh, to get the Pharaoh to let his people go. And the last plague... God called the Passover. And God said that on this night, that the firstborn son of every household would be taken on this night. But he gave his people very specific instructions to take the blood of a spotless lamb and to paint it on their doorposts. To paint the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And then the Passover night came and the Lord passed over the land of Egypt and all of the firstborn sons were taken, but the people of God who had painted the blood of the lamb on their house, they were spared because, why? Because of the blood of the lamb. 
to signify that this house belongs to God. This house belongs to Jesus. And so today, we live our lives in a way, in such a way, to paint the shed blood of Jesus on our homes. And to say, yes, I mess up every day and I have sinned daily and I fall short of the glory of God every day of my life. But I plead the blood of Jesus. I painted on my doorpost as the one who died for me and made a way for me in spite of my sin. And I will continue to paint the blood of Jesus on my home to signify that it and my family belongs to God. Covered and protected and kept by the blood of the blood of the Lamb of Jesus. So my prayer today for our families and for our kids is that we would keep the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus, on our doorposts of our lives that we would exalt his name and hold tight to his word, and that we would gather under that shed, redeeming, unifying blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you, and that we would mark our families as families after God's heart. Because death was coming to everyone in the land of Egypt on that night, but the one thing that marked them as God's people was the blood of the lamb. Not whether or not I went to church that week or whether or not I gave or whether I was kind, which are good things and are evidences of a life with Christ. But the only thing in the end that marks us as God's people is the shed blood of Jesus and whether or not we cling to it and worship that name. Let's pray. So Jesus, we thank you for your shed blood that that you gave so freely. And God, I pray now that uh, for our families, for our kids, that we would do these things, that we would exalt your name, Jesus, and that we would cling to your word and that we would love your word. Holy Spirit, would you help us to do this? Amen.